Exodus chapter 20, and uh, this evening we are going to be looking at number nine, number nine. It's hard to believe we're almost done here uh, with our, our list of 10, 10, what do we call in these things? 10 timeless truths to guide and guard us on our journey through life. So number nine in God's top 10 list, here it is in verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Just curious, how many of you, uh, does your Bible say, uh, thou shalt not lie? That's all it says, thou shalt not lie. Anybody have that, thou shalt not lie? Okay, good, you got a good translation then. Um, because this is what it should say, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And we're going to see that this ninth commandment is more than just, um, more, more than just uh, telling a lie. It's very specific about the kind of lie uh, that we're not supposed to tell. So let me pray and uh, we'll talk about it. Father, we, we're so grateful for your word and, and how it is our guide for life and, and godliness. And we desire to be godly. We desire to be like you. And Lord, everything in our flesh, everything in, our, in this world, Lord, and we know our enemy Satan uh, and his minions, Lord, are opposed to us becoming uh, like you. And so we desperately need your help tonight uh, as we consider what you meant by what you said here about not bearing false witness against our neighbor. Give us insight uh, into this text by your Spirit's illuminating work. And I pray that your spirit would make application uh, in our hearts, Lord, that we would grow and, and, and change and uh, be more conformed to you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the classic scenes in, in courtroom dramas that we've all maybe witnessed firsthand or in a movie or on a TV show uh, is when the witness is asked to place their hand on a Bible and uh, raise the other hand and solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And uh, if a witness, after making that oath, uh, is found to have lied under oath, they can be charged with a crime called perjury, lying under oath. And when a person's truthfulness is called into question, oftentimes they're ordered to take a what? A lie detector test. Interesting that uh, we had to invent such a thing because we're liars and we have a tendency to lie. And so we had to come up with this thing called a lie detector test, a way to test whether or not we're telling the truth. And if anyone is caught in a lie, they can no longer be trusted. And we need to understand that our reputation hinges on our honesty and believability. Listen to the words of Robertson McQuilkin, the, the uh, president for years at Columbia Bible College. Um, this is what he said. He said, falsehood is the basic fault line in the foundation of the soul, putting all the superstructure in jeopardy. All the believability a person has, his very integrity totters on the shifting sand of one lie. 
Let me read that again. All the believability a person has, his very integrity totters on the shifting sand of one lie. Nothing can cause more damage to a reputation than a single lie, either told by you or told about you. It may be that you don't lie, but maybe somebody lied about you. And that could be just as damaging to your reputation if it's believed. All it takes is one lie to destroy a person's reputation forever. And because a person's reputation is such a fragile thing, it must be carefully protected. And if you truly love someone, we're talking about these commands are all about loving God and loving who? Each other. And so if you truly love someone, you're going to respect and protect their reputation by being absolutely truthful in what you say about them. Last week, we learned about how we need to respect other people's what? property. Uh, tonight, we're going to look, about, look, look at respecting one another's reputation. And I think this is the real meaning of the ninth commandment. The, the ninth commandment is typically understood as just a, a general command against lying. In fact, you, you often see it in a list, uh, and all as it says is, is, is thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, and it says thou shalt not lie. But that's not what our text says. It says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so, true, this ultimately relates to all forms of lying, It specifically refers to lying about other people, uh, saying things that aren't true, that damage or destroy uh, their their reputation. It's what I think God had in mind here primarily was a defamation of character, a character assassination. And the language that's used here reflects the, the ancient Jewish legal system. In those days, as you could imagine, there were no surveillance cameras There was no DNA testing. There was no forensic labs. There was no fingerprinting. There was no lie detector tests to help them determine the truth about a particular crime. All they had to work with were what? Witnesses. And witnesses were the decisive factor in establishing a person's guilt or innocence. And so when it came to to severe crimes, a person's life depended on the honesty of the witnesses. And a dishonest witness could be fatal. A person could be wrongly executed as a result of of a false testimony about them. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, God emphasized the importance of being a truthful witness. That's why he established safeguards to protect the innocent against false accusations. That's why he threatened to severely punish false witnesses. Look, look with me at some references here uh, in the Old Testament about this matter. Exodus 23, right there in the neighborhood. Just turn a few pages to the right. Uh, Exodus 23, verse 1. You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be, a part, be partial to a poor man in his dispute. 
If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in, this, in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit, acquit the guilty. In other words, if you, if you accuse a, 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 an innocent man, you will be guilty uh, yourself of a crime. How about, how about uh, Leviticus 19? Leviticus 19. Exodus, Leviticus 19, verse 11. Leviticus 19, 11, it says, You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord." Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. How about Deuteronomy 17? Deuteronomy 17, verses 6 and 7. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so again, the importance of witnesses here, and not just one witness, but two witnesses. And that's why in the New Testament, Jesus said um, that when you're confronting someone about their sin... Uh, if they don't listen to you in a private confrontation, you're supposed to get one or two more, what? Witnesses, second step of church discipline or restoration, uh, is to pursue him, uh, pursue her with one or two witnesses. Um, it also says in First Timothy chapter 5, not to receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of what? Two witnesses. You just can't have somebody show up and say, well, the, well, the pastor is this, or that elder is this, or this guy is this. And there's only one, you're the only person that feels this way, thinks this way, uh, you know, experienced this, and there's no one else in the whole church that has ever witnessed this, seen this, um, uh, or would accuse them of this, right? Then you don't receive it. How about Psalm 15? We're just going to jump ahead. There's lots of other references that we could look at, but just let's just jump to the Psalms. Um, I'll just read Psalm 5, 6 on our way there. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. In other words, he, God puts murder and, and, and deceitfulness on the same level. He hates them both. How about Psalm 15, verse 2? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Psalm 63, Psalm 63, verse 11. We're just looking at this theme here for a few minutes. Psalm 63, verse 11. 
but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. And then maybe just jump to Proverbs here. Lots to say about this subject in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. So you're like, whoa, time out. He's about to give us a list of the things that God hates more than anything else. So listen up. What are they? Haughty eyes, number one. Number two, what? A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false, who? A false witness who utters lies and who spreads strife amongst brothers. So in the list of seven things here, two of them are related to lying and particularly being a false, false witness. How about Proverbs chapter 12, verse 17? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 17. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness, deceit. Verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Chapter 14, verse 5. A trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. Verse 25 there, a truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. Proverbs 17, verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. In other words, those, of, those people who let off let, let guilty people free and who send innocent people to jail. They're both equally guilty. 18, chapter 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Chapter 19, verse 5. A false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will not escape. Verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will perish. Chapter 24, verse 28, do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause and do not deceive with your lips. Chapter 25, verse 18, like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. And then maybe one more in Zechariah towards the end of the Old Testament. Just go to Matthew and then back up. Uh, Zechariah chapter 8 Verses 16 and 17, it says this. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against another and do not love perjury. For all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. And so God hates lying. And in particular, he hates perjury, lying under oath, and he hates those who are a false witness, who lie about another person. I think one of the greatest examples of, 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 of these verses that we've been looking at is in 1 Kings chapter 21. Just turn there, 1 Kings chapter 21, and here we have that story of Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. Don't ever name your daughter Jezebel, that wouldn't be a good name. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel and Naboth. And Naboth had what that Ahab wanted? Had a vineyard. 
It's not like he didn't have his own vineyards. He was the king. He could have had anything he wanted, but he was, uh, wasn't happy. Um, I guess this would be a great example as well of the 10th commandment, thou shalt not, what, covet. And so here in 1 Kings chapter 21, we see Ahab's covet, Ahab coveting Naboth's vineyard. Verse 1, now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is a close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Like, hey, listen, but I appreciate the request, the offer, but hey, this has been in my family for years. I'm not about to sell you my inheritance. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down in his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. So he goes home and has, has a little pity party, a little temper tantrum, if you will. And, and, his, and his wife Jezebel comes in and is like, oh, poor baby, what's the matter? His wife came to him and said, how is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I'll give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. I mean, you just kind of hear, he said he wouldn't give me his vineyard, right? I mean, just kind of like a crybaby here. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. You're the king, dude. Why are you all sad? Get up and eat. And oh, by the way, I'll take care of it. You tell me who was wearing the pants in that relationship, right? So here comes Jezebel. She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying you curse God and the king then take him out and stone him to death what is she proposing there that hey find two guys that can testify falsely against Naboth and go kill him so the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two worthless men, i.e. the false witnesses, came in and sat before them, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones." I mean, talk about the antithesis of the ninth commandment. Um, and, and, and oh, by the way, Ahab was the king of Israel. The one who was supposed to be modeling obedience to the Ten Commandments. And this was a blatant disregard of the ninth commandment. So all that to say, the, the ninth commandment here, which going back to Exodus chapter 20, let's get back there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That commandment primarily refers to telling the truth in a court of law. Okay? Do you see that? Now, at the same time, I think we could safely say that it extends outside the courtroom 
and applies to speaking any kind of lie or falsehood that harms another person's reputation. It may not end in their death, but it could end in the death of their reputation. You could destroy their reputation. In other words, there's a wider application here than just perjury, lying under oath. Philip Ryken, who has written an excellent book on the Ten Commandments, said this. He said, the Ninth Commandment is not just about the false testimony that people give in court, but also about the lies they tell their neighbors over the backyard fence and the rumors they whisper between the pews at church. Now we're getting to meddling, okay? Now we're getting to, you're saying, well, I've never even been a witness in a, in a court case, and most of you probably will never be a witness in a court case. So you're like, oh, I guess I, I got that one down. I don't need to be worried about breaking the, the, the ninth commandment. Okay, well, hold up a second, okay? Because every day of our lives, we have the possibility, the potential of breaking the ninth commandment in, in, in the sense that we could very easily assassinate another person's character Anytime we slander them or gossip about them or flatter them or refuse to speak up for them. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Let's talk about how we could potentially assassinate another person's character through slander, gossip, flattery, and silence. Slander, number one. What is slander? Slander is making false accusations against somebody to deliberately damage and diminish their reputation. It's, it's sharing negative information about a person, even if it's true. Even if it's true. And you're like, well, well, it's true. Okay, it may be true, but is it necessary? Do you really have to be talking about that person like that? Is it necessary? Let me read you a, a story that some of you, uh, I'm sure, have heard before, but I read it years ago and I've never forgotten it. There was a small village in which there was a, only one church that many of the members in the community attended. One lady in the church spread a slanderous story about the pastor throughout the town. Eventually, God convicted the lady of her sinful gossiping, and she went to the pastor to ask him to forgive her for what she had done. The old pastor said, well, of course I'll forgive you. I would just ask that you do one thing. She said, what's that? I want you to go home, kill a chicken, and pluck its feathers, and then go through the village and place a few feathers on every street corner. Well, of course, this seemed like a strange request, but the lady, uh, feeling guilty about the way she had treated her pastor, willingly complied. When she returned, the pastor said, okay. Now go back through the village and gather up all the feathers and make sure not one is missing. And the lady immediately exclaimed, well, that's impossible. By now, the wind has scattered them everywhere. And the pastor said, exactly. And while I gladly forgive you, never forget that you can never undo the damage that your words have done to my reputation. That lady underestimated the power of her tongue. And I think she is not unlike many people in the church today who don't seem to realize the unimaginable and irreparable pain and damage that they can cause by their foolish and careless words. Turn over to James, James uh, chapter 3, back in the, in the tail end of the, the New Testament there, uh, Hebrews 
James, James chapter 3, here we have that classic text about the, the, the power of the tongue. James chapter 3, uh, let's just look at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. In other words, a, a, a forest fire is started with just one spark. It's a tiny little spark, and it ends up destroying thousands of acres of forest. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. In other words, there's a pipeline running from hell through our mouth. For every species of beasts and birds of the reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Think about that verse the next time you go to SeaWorld or go to the circus or somewhere where they've trained some animal. I mean, they can train a stinking killer whale to jump out of the water, do some flips, right? They can train the little, the little otter to you know, run across the stage and do all that kind of cute stuff, right? And we can train all these animals, but you can't tame this sucker right here. <laughs> the tongue is the deadliest weapon known to man. It has destroyed more lives than any gun or sword or atomic bomb ever has. It's killed more people than all the wars that have ever been fought combined. That little piece of, little slab of meat you got in your mouth is a weapon unlike any other. Thomas Watson, who is a very vivid Puritan writer, he said, God has set two natural fences to keep in the tongue. I mean, the tongue's like this little Tasmanian devil in there, and there's two fences, the teeth and the lips. Watson says, God put some teeth in front of your tongue, and then on top of that, he put your lips to keep your tongue, right, from sinning. And then he said this, and this commandment is a third fence set about it. So you got your teeth, you got your tongue, and you got the ninth commandment. Triple guard, if you will that your tongue should not break forth into evil. And so, number one, we need to be careful not to slander people, to destroy their reputation uh, through um, what we say about them. Secondly is gossip, which would be the, the kiss and cousin, I guess, of slander. Um, they're related. Slander and gossip uh, are, are related. Uh, you say, well, what's, what's different about Gossip. Well, I would define gossip in this way, and that is just listening to and passing on evil reports about other people. Slander is the 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 um, I guess the, the the sense I get when I study the word slander and read verses about slander. There's definitely a maliciousness about slander that you're purposely, you're intentionally saying bad things about other people to destroy their reputation. Gossip. Um, not that it's innocent, but it seems to come across as a more innocent um, uh, act, if you will, because it's really just listening to and passing on evil reports about other people. You're not necessarily uh, meaning any harm by it. You're just saying, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Um, 
Or how's this? Hey, you know, uh, can I share a prayer request with you? We really need to pray for our brother. We really need to pray for our sister. Sometimes we spiritualize gossip. So make, it, make it, trying to cover our, ourselves so it doesn't, it's not obvious that we're gossiping. We, we couch it as a prayer request. Um, I thought this was interesting. The National Enquirer, you don't hear too much about that these days as much as you used to, but you know, they got the National Enquirer there when you're checking out at the grocery store uh, along with all the other tabloids. In fact, the National Enquirer was the, the one that spawned all the other tabloids that you see uh, you know, fighting for space there uh, as you're checking out at the grocery store. But the National Enquirer claims to have the largest circulation of any paper in America. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure, but what is the National Enquirer? I know, you've taken a peek as you've walked through the cart. Whoa, that that guy's an alien? I didn't know that. (laughs) Goofy stuff, right? Crazy stuff. But every week, that magazine is filled with the latest secrets and scandals about famous people. You say, well, what makes that silly paper so popular? Because it feeds something in our flesh. People love to hear juicy gossip about others. That's how the National Enquirer makes its, its killing. Proverbs 18.8, words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. So I'll grab a candy bar and the National Enquirer. Dainty morsels, right? Throw them in my bag and go home. And I would just say this. You say, well, hey, I, 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 I don't gossip. I don't, I, don't, I don't pass on stories about other people. Well, do you listen to them? I think when we listen to gossip, we're just as guilty as the one who's gossiping. Why? Because we're acting as accomplices to a character assassination. You're an accomplice. You're like, I didn't steal it. Yeah, but you drove the car. Okay. You're just as guilty. Again, Thomas Watson says, As it is a sin against this commandment to raise a false report of another, so it is to receive a false report before we've examined it. He that raises a slander carries the devil in his tongue, and he that receives it carries the devil in his ear. So we've talked about the ears quite a bit here at Lakeside Bible Church, right? Expository listening, being hearers of the word, not just, uh, not just being hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Uh, the, the Bible talks a lot about ears. And, and our ears can be just as sinful as our tongues if we're listening to gossip and receiving it. C.H. Spurgeon, in, in my favorite chapter in his uh, classic lectures to my students, it's called The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. And basically the point of the chapter is, you know, my best eye is my blind eye, my best ear is my deaf ear. And he says, I'm hearing na 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 all the time as a pastor, and you will. He's teaching these younger men who are in his, his pastor's training college. And he says, listen, you guys are going to hear all sorts of stuff as a pastor. And, and you're going to see all sorts of stuff as a pastor. And so you just got to turn a blind eye to it and a deaf ear to it. And, and when the sheep are bleeding, you know, not bleeding like bloody bleeding, but nah, Right? He says, forget about it. It'll drive you crazy if you, if you listen to all that stuff. And so this is the point of the blind eye and the deaf ear. 
And this is what he says, quote, I heartily wish that by any process we could put down gossip, but I suppose that it will never be done so long as the human race continues what it is, to be, uh, to, 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 continues to be what it is. What can't be cured must be endured, and the best way of enduring it is to not listen to it. If there are not listening ears, there would not be tail-bearing tongues. In other words, gossip is a supply and demand deal. When there's no demand for it, I don't want to hear la, 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 there's no supply. But if everybody's like, oh, oh, really? Uh, Oh, well, there's going to be a lot of people filling that void, filling that need. Spurgeon says this, my counsel is that we join the (laughs) know-nothings and never say a word upon a matter till we have heard both sides and moreover that we do our best to avoid hearing either one side or the other if their matter does not concern us. And we all have a tendency to be busybodies, right? We want to get into everybody else's business and listen, if it's none of your business, forget about it. Be, be a part of that blessed group of the know-nothings. Really? There's problems in our church? I don't know about it. I haven't heard anything about it. And don't, t- don't talk to me about it. I don't want to hear it. That's <laughs> you, a, a blessed group, the, the know-nothings. They're just happy. They're content. They're like lo- loving Jesus and growing and maturing, and they're not being sucked into all this chatter of what's going on. And I love what he said, do our best to avoid um, saying a word upon a matter till we have heard both sides. Proverbs 18, 17, man, this is such a great verse, and man, you'd think I would have this down by now. As a pastor, as a counselor, uh, Proverbs 18, 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines it. In other words, there's always two sides of the story. And, and you hear one side, somebody comes in and says, oh, da 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 and you're like, really? Whoa, that's crazy. Are you kidding me? And next thing you know, you're siding with them against their spouse or their kids or their parents or their co-worker or their brother or sister in Christ in the church. And then the other guy comes along or the other gal comes along and, and tells you their side of the story. And you're like, oh, wow, that's like, I have a totally different perspective about that now. And you feel like a stoopy face because you got all fired up, right, about this situation and you only had one side of the story. So when you hear one side of the story, say, I appreciate you sharing that with me. I'll have to get back to you because I got to go hear the other side of the story. In other words, I'm not just going to believe you without hearing the other person because I don't know, how do I know you're not lying to me? You sound very convincing. That's what it says. The first to plead his case seems right. Wow, this sounds totally right. Until the other comes along and says, yeah, but, and you're like, oh, okay, there's more to the story than I, than I realized. So the point is withhold judgment until you have all the facts. And most of the time, most of the time, I would say 95% of the time, we only get one side of the story, don't we? So guess what? We're in a position where we can make no judgment whatsoever. We can't do anything with what we've heard other than to pray and forget about it. Unless you feel like you're 
intricately involved in the situation, then I think you have a responsibility to pursue that and go get the other side of the story. If you can be a part of the reconciliation of that situation. What should we do when someone tries to tell us something about someone else that we know we shouldn't hear? Have you ever been in a situation like that? Somebody just starts kind of getting into something and they start just talking and you're like, whoa, 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 time out. La, 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 la. I don't want to hear this, right? What, what do you do? I think Philip Ryken gives some great counsel. He, should see, he says this, we should say, you know, this is starting to sound like gossip. That'd be good for us to include that in our conversation. You know, hey, time out. This is starting to sound like gossip. Uh, we need to talk about something else. Let's change the subject. Or we should say, wait, before you say anything more, why don't we stop and pray about this? It's a good way to respond. Then after bringing the matter before the Lord, you can say, well, now what, what did you want to talk to me about again? <laughs> Or we should say, I'm sorry, I'm not sure I can listen to this anymore. Tell me, have you gone and spoken about this to the people involved? Because if you haven't, it wouldn't be right for us to talk about it right now. Unless you've talked about it with that other person, you shouldn't be talking to me about it. These are the kind of conversations that we need to be willing to have with one another and, and, and speak the truth in love. And, 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 and call some people off and say, time out, uh-uh, no. I am not going to listen to that, and you have no business telling me or anyone else that. You need to go back and talk to those people and get your facts straight before you start spreading this story around or this, this, this whatever around. Um, and so that's gossip. Slander, gossip, and another application, I think, it would be flattery. Flattery. You say, well, what's flattery? Well, if gossip and slander are saying something behind a person's back that you would never say to their face, flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. In other words, you walk up and you're like, hey, how's it going? Hey, you know what? I really appreciate you're such, you know, this and that. And, the, and you, you get away. You, you don't really believe that about the, that person. You would never say that to someone else. Yeah, I just saw so-and-so. They are just the neatest guy. I just love him. He is so humble. He is so, if you wouldn't say that to somebody else, then don't, don't flatter them. Don't say it to them. That's disingenuous. Listen to some verses about flattery. Psalm 12. Psalm 12, verses 2 and 3. Psalm 12, verse 2. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. Man, can you imagine going through life lipless? It's insane. If you, if you flatter people and say things to them you don't really mean, you might as well have your lips cut off. There'd be some funny looking people if that's what God was actually doing, Right? A lot of people with missing lips. Proverbs 26, 28. Proverbs 26, verse 28. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. 
Proverbs 29, verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. You're not helping that guy. You're, you're hurting that guy. And then Jude, Jude 16, this is a, a description or part of the description of, of false teachers. And this is what it says. They, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak errant, arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. In other words, they'll tell you whatever they think you want to hear, so it would be to their advantage, to benefit themselves. And so we have to be careful that we are not guilty of flattery, saying things to people that we don't mean, uh, saying things um, that we would never say uh, to others about them. And then fourthly here, we could talk about silence. Silence, that we could violate the ninth commandment um, as much by silence as by slander. When we know, if we know someone's guilty and we don't say something or we know they're innocent but we refuse to say anything, we're guilty. Leviticus chapter 5 verse 1, Leviticus chapter 5 verse 1 says this, Now if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he is seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. In other words, you're guilty if you stay silent. If you don't speak up and say, that guy did it, I saw it with my own eyes, he's guilty. If you're there trying to cover somebody's tracks, you're wrong. Or if you know the person's innocent, and everybody's saying he's guilty, and you don't speak up for him, if you don't stand up for the truth, you're wrong. You're violating, you're being a false witness against your neighbor. Someone said this, we transgress this precept when we do not speak at all. For by holding our peace when something injurious is said of another, we tacitly give our assent, and by concealing what we know to the contrary... In other words, if you hear somebody speaking badly of someone else that you know, and, 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 and you know that's not their reputation, then you need to be quick to defend the reputation of other people. We need to be jealous for each other's reputation and guard it like we would our own. We, we shouldn't let bad things be said about each other. I mean, if someone, someone says something negative about someone that you know, you should say something like, you know, hey, time out. That doesn't sound like the so-and-so I know. I refuse to believe that until I, I talk to them personally about that. I had to do that recently. Someone was just kind of going off on somebody, and, and, and I said, whoa, 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 time out. I said, where did you get your information? I said, that is not the character of those people you're talking about. I don't know where you came up with that perception, but, but uh, that's wrong. And, and, and you, need to get your, you need to go back and talk to them about that. If you're spreading that around, um, that's going to damage the reputation. And that's not what we've come to know this, th- th- these people to be. And, and uh, kind of had to jump in the gap, if you jump, stand in the gap for, for another family in our church. And so whenever we're told something 
about someone else, we can do one of three things. These are your three options, okay? When you're told something about someone else, you got three choices. Number one, you can believe it. What do you think about that choice? <clears throat> Number two, you can spread it. You can perpetuate it. Or number three, you can go to the source and try to disprove it. What, is, what does the Bible say about love in 1 Corinthians 13? Love believes the best about others rather than assumes the worst. And love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. So if you truly love me... You're going to do everything you can to guard my reputation. If I love you, I'm going to do everything I can to guard your reputation. If we love one another, we're going to be defending one another all the time and saying, I'm not going to believe it until I know it, until I hear it come from their lips. I ain't believing that. What's the principle? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, how would you want someone to respond if, if somebody was dogging you or tearing down your reputation, what would you want them to do? You would want them to jump in the fray and defend you, right? So do that for someone else. Or ask yourself, would I want someone saying this about me? If I wouldn't want somebody saying this about me, then why am I saying it about them? We need to learn to ask ourselves those questions and kind of hear ourselves speaking, going, you know what? This does not sound good. I would not want somebody talking to me like this. So, for example, <laughs> when we sometimes know our spouses better than anyone else, and we see them at their great, in their greatest moments, and we see them in their worst moments. Is that not true? And so maybe, you, maybe your, your, your spouse is having a bad day and, uh, and, and you left the house, one or both of you, and, and, and did not respond in a godly way. And so it'd be very easy, the next person you talk to is talk about what a jerk your husband is or what a whatever your wife is, and it'd be easy, easy to throw them under the bus, right? And instead, of somebody would say, Hey, how's it going? And you, you could just simply say, you know what? My wife's not at her best right now. I mean, isn't that a gracious way to cover, let love cover a multitude of sins? It's not like you're, you're sweeping sin under the rug. You're just saying, hey, you know what? She's not at her best right now. I would, I would want somebody to say that about me. You know what? He's, he's just not at his best right now. That's not who he is, right? He, he's, he's struggling right now. Uh, we just need to learn to be gracious in how we communicate with one another because ultimately what goes around comes around. And I promise you, if you are a gossip, if you are a slanderer, watch out because it's going to come back to bite you. And you are going to get sucked right into that whole gossip, slander, you know, shredder. And, 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 and if you're going around tearing down other people's reputation... It's only a matter of time before it comes back to you. It comes back to haunt you. And, and I'm just convinced that, that God is the silent witness of every conversation that we ever have. 
even the ones in secret, behind closed doors with our closest friends. And we have to think about how are we talking about one another in those conversations because God hears those conversations. He sees. He hears. And what goes around comes around. And oftentimes God's way of punishing us for gossip and slander is allowing us to get gossip and slander against, right? So all lying is sin. We would agree with that, right? All lying is sin. But the worst form of lying is when we lie about someone for the purpose of damaging or destroying their reputation. And I believe that's the main issue that God had in his mind when he gave us the ninth commandment. And all the verses in, in the New Testament related to telling the truth uh, or lying confirm uh, this particular command. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. We just looked at this a couple of Sundays ago. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In other words, we, have, we should have each other's back guarding, protecting one another's reputation. We should speak the truth in love. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, these are things that we're supposed to put away. These are habits of our old self, of, a, of an unbeliever, of a pagan. This is what unbelievers do. And now, this is easier said than done because guess what? We are natural born liars. Living in a world full of liars who've exchanged the truth for a lie. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. The point is this, did, did any of you have to teach your kids how to lie? Did they figure that out by themselves? You never sat them down and said, now listen, Sally, I'm going to teach you how to lie. You didn't have to teach them that. They figured that out all by themselves. Why? Because they come by it naturally. Psalm 116, verse 11, all men are liars. We're all guilty. All of us are liars. By nature. Listen to what Jeremiah, the prophet, said to the people of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 3. Talk about a, he, he was lamenting over the state of Israel, where they were at, their spiritual state. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 3. They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor. Do not trust any brother, because every brother deals craftily, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, declares the Lord." The point is that in the same way that Israel was overrun with lying, I think we could say that our world today is overrun with lying. Would you not agree? That, that, that it's hard to trust anybody these days. 
You can't even trust the President of the United States. That position, that office, when, when, when that man takes office, what does he do? He puts his hand on a Bible and he says, I solemnly swear to faithfully fulfill these duties and basically to be a truthful man of integrity. And when the, the man, the one man who's supposed to be a, a, the epitome of truthfulness in our culture lies under oath about committing sex acts in the Oval Office and gets off scot-free, that's a huge indicator where the truth stands in our nation. Isaiah 59, 14 says, truth has stumbled in the street. What, what a vivid image that here's truth walking down the road and has stumbled and fallen in the street. And we need to come to truth's rescue. We need to run to the rescue and, and pick up truth, if you will, uphold the truth. Of all people, George Orwell said this, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. I had the privilege this last week of hearing for the first time in person a man that I'd heard a lot about for years um, as a stalwart of the truth, and that was Oliver North. Remember that whole deal, the Iran-Contra hearings years ago, back in the 80s, I believe it was, and got to hear him speak on, on, on Friday night, and what a, what a man of integrity. And he's a good example of a revolutionary, a guy that stood up and said the truth, whether you liked it or not. The point is that God has called us to be revolutionaries. We're called to be people of truth in what, what one man has called a post-truth society. Let's face it, we live in a post-truth society. Romans 1.25, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Isaiah 59, again, the, the prophet talking about what has separated the nation of Israel from God, listen to what he says, and see the application to our culture today. Isaiah 59, verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Okay, so basically it's your sin has separated you from God. There's a division between you and God. And then he goes on to describe these sins. Your sins have hidden his face for you, from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. So you're murdering people. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. The point is the sin of lying separates us from God. God will not and cannot have a relationship with a liar. You get that? God will not, he cannot have a relationship with a liar. He hates lying. It's an affront to his holy character. And we know that every one of the Ten Commandments here reveals something about the character of God. And what do we learn about the character of God from the Ninth Commandment? It shows us that God hates lying. Why? Why does God hate lying? Because he's a God of what? Truth. Listen to the, some verses 
both in the Old and New Testament. Psalm 31, 5, O Lord, God of truth. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Romans 3, 4, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, God cannot lie. Hebrews 6, 18, it is, in, uh, 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. So is it no wonder why in the list of sins that keep you out of heaven, one of them is that you're a liar? Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Liar, liar, souls on fire is what he's saying there. And then he goes on in Revelation chapter 22, verse 15. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I mean, that's a short list. There's a lot of things he could have added in there that would keep you out of heaven. And lying, he ends with lying. Those who love and practice lying. His point is no habitual liars will be allowed into heaven. Because if you're a habitual liar, you're not a what? Christian. You're not a true believer. And so you will have to spend eternity with your father, the devil. You see what he's talking about? John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of what? Lies. Satan's the father of lies. I think it's interesting that throughout Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders launched an all-out smear campaign against him Talk about slandering and gossiping someone, a character assassination. They spread all sorts of slanderous lies about him in an attempt to undermine, destroy his reputation in the minds of the people of Israel, that he was conceived out of wedlock, he was demon-possessed, he was a friend of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, he was a Samaritan, Uh, he was a blasphemer. And in the end, the religious leaders of Israel Broke the Ten Commandments, or I should say broke the Ninth Commandment in order to have him crucified. Because they relied on the inconsistent testimony of two false witnesses to contrive the evidence they needed to convict Jesus of blasphemy. Matthew chapter 26 tells the story. Matthew 26, verse 59 Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on two came forward. Okay, we got our two witnesses. The Bible says, Old Testament says we got to have two witnesses. So we had two witnesses come forward. And they said, I am able, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild in these in these in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. 
You see the point? They, they had to break the ninth commandment to kill Jesus. And so they delivered Jesus over to the Roman governor, Pilate, as you know, and, and requested that he be crucified for attempting to start a revolution by claiming that he was the king of the Jews. And, and, and if you remember, Pilate engaged Jesus in one of the most intriguing conversations ever recorded in the Gospels. And we're almost there in our study of the Gospel of John, John chapter 18, verse 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? I mean, they said you're claiming to be the king of the Jews. Are, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, are, are, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests deliver you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate asked that famous question, he said, what is truth? Well, earlier in John's gospel, Jesus had already answered that question when he said, I am the way, the truth. I, I am the truth. No man comes to the Father but through me. I don't know where you're all at tonight, but you may be sitting here disillusioned by the dishonest world, void of truth in which you find yourself living and you're asking the same cynical question that Pilate asked, well, what is truth anyway? Well, can I tell you that based on the authority of God's word, Jesus Christ is the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. And if you're willing to admit that you're a liar living in a world full of liars who have separated themselves from God and we deserve to go to hell because of our lying. But we believe that Christ died on, on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin of lying and we commit our lives to follow and obey him as our personal Lord and Savior. Guess what? We will know and understand the truth. Amen? Amen? And he is the one who enables us to be truthful, to be honest, to keep the ninth commandment. You cannot keep the ninth commandment if you're not a Christian. If you don't have Christ living in you, you cannot keep the ninth commandment. It's impossible. But with the help of Christ, who is the truth, as you are more and more conformed to the image of Christ, you will be more and more truthful. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the ninth commandment. And there's a lot here that maybe we've not thought about before, but Lord, we confess to you that we are liars by nature and we're so good at gossiping and slandering and destroying other people's reputations. Lord, I pray that you would just guard our church from, from being like so many other churches where uh, they get sideways with one another and cross-threaded and just say and do mean things to each other and it's just so hurtful and ultimately just dishonoring to Christ. And so help us, Lord, to learn to, to guard one another's reputation and to, 
to, to only speak the best of others and believe the best of others. And Lord, if you do put us in situations where there are issues that need to be addressed with others, where there is sin um, that, that is damaging their reputation, tainting their reputation, that you would give us grace to know how to get involved and to pursue them and to lovingly admonish them and speak the truth to them and uh, restore them, Father, so that they can uh, have a, a reputation that, that is honorable and ultimately brings you honor and glory. So, Lord, help us to put this message into practice. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.